Hello out there. My name is Evan. This is Illiterate. My name is Taylor. I read a play this week. I watched a movie. This week we are doing Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. The Netflix film just came out over the holidays. I didn't know anything about this going in. I was completely living up to the title yet again. I had no idea. about anything about this, who wrote it, who these characters were, what this story was going to be, went into it totally blind. And I said we should talk about August Wilson, because I didn't know much about him at all. And this is based on his play that he wrote. This film is getting a, a, a lot of praise primarily for its lead actors, Chadwick Boseman, Viola Davis. There's a, a huge chance that they will both be nominated for Academy Awards. People love the movie. My my like actual live reaction to it was I had no idea any of what I was about to go on. About 20 minutes in, I'm going, is this a play? 30 minutes in, I'm almost certain of it. And I'm 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 bewildered through the rest of the film because it, it feels a bit weighed down. Um and and from then on I can't stop thinking about it. So I start looking into it right there. Usually I watch a film absorb it and then I start looking into it. I I I had to start going into this because it's so rich. Um, and that's kind of my my dichotomy with it here. And I'm about to get explained is it, it's so brilliant. The themes here at work are so amazing, but it works on a stage level. And, and I was I was really lost at trying to see where where the film version of this was really going to take hold. Amazingly, though, I mean, and, and again, we're going right back to it. Chadwick Boseman and Viola Davis carry the entire thing and they're amazing. Viola right. Davis's character, uh, she plays Ma, the titular character, Ma Rainey. She's an influential blues singer. And it's a dramatizing of a one recording session that her and her band do in Chicago in 1927. So for the majority of it, it's in one or two rooms. I was distressed watching it because I was waiting for the film to really break out. And so realizing, oh my gosh, yes, this is a play. And and yes, these people have incredible reverence for this material so much. It seems that they're not, that they're doing, they're, this is the material. We're doing it, doing it respect. Uh, we're doing it right. Uh, and this is just, I'm really harping on, on one, one view here because this thing is so rich and so beautiful underneath that I feel like it's it's just ready to be harnessed right. and and I said before these love August Wilson that's all I have to say <laughs> yeah, they, well, they love they love August Wilson and they love plays so produced by Denzel Washington who played with Viola Davis in the revival of Fences the right. when it was on Broadway and then the director is George C Wolf who is a playwright and he directed his big thing was Angels in America right. that huge Huge multi two part thing. Yeah. The writer, Ruben Santiago Hudson, he is a film and television actor. I saw he had 63 different credits in various films and TV roles. Why pick him to adapt this? Because he was friends with August Wilson for 25 years. August Wilson had suggested he direct some of his plays. So he directed the second to the last one that August Wilson wrote before he died. He also directed the revival of one of his earlier plays on Broadway, which got him nominated for a Tony. And then he won. Tony acting in August Wilson's Seven Guitars, which also stars Viola Davis. My and <laughs> this guy, Ruben Santiago Hudson, he has produced, directed, or acted in all of Wilson's plays. Wow. So he knows everything yeah. about it and is a good yeah, friend. Sure. So like you said, in terms of how to adapt it, also the play is two and a half hours. The movie is a brisk 90 minutes for modern. Yeah. Like yeah, they really, could have yeah, just yeah. done it as the two and a half hour play. <laughs> What they and cut they, out of this thing? Oh my god! And that's what I mean. And that—that's what I think. That's why it's got me so hopped up. 
and I have to apologize because the mo- I mean it's beautiful. This whole thing is beautiful, but it's I, it's so much of this is like they come forth and and tell you all this amazing character stuff that I I wanted the movie to use it uh, right. and instead of profess it. Yeah, and that's just the difference in a lot of ways. I, I don't know. Right. And I'm so interested in what you have dredged up from Ruben, from the, all of your sources to kind of enlighten this to me, because I need to know more. I need to contextualize <laughs> this for myself. So come yeah. along with us. <laughs> so Ruben had said in terms of how he went to adapting it, it's like, it's a two and a half hour play, get it down to 90 minutes. He knows August as a person. He's, August said, he'd always say, what's the song? We'll see. Music is a very big part of his writing creative process. Mm -hmm. So it's like he saw it as kind of a rhythm. And in the two and a half hour play, there's definitely a rhythm and a melody to what's going on. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of like, what is when I cut stuff out, maybe what's the connective tissue that keeps the rhythm of that going in Mm -hmm. my adaptation. But again, talking about like you're saying with film and the visual language, I think he didn't perhaps want to go all the way to, oh, we're just completely shifting things around and whatnot. So and he said there right. was probably 30 different drafts that he was doing trying to figure out what to what to change and switch around. And then he was saying it's interesting because there's also a parallel in the story of Levy and Ma where these two characters kind of have differing viewpoints on what music is or going to be or whose version of a song gets used. Right. Uh, so uh, uh, let, I'll take two seconds to kind of explain the dynamic between uh, Ma and Levy. Ma is at the end of her career and that is causing an incredible amount of insecurities. What's not presented in the film is there's a rival uh, blues artist that is surpassing her and causes a huge identity crisis of, well, where am I going to land? Imagine uh, she is the goddess of blues, but the art form is is transcending her. It's going beyond her. People don't exactly know her name when she goes to the north. She runs the place in the south, but it doesn't work exactly in the north. When she travels north, she finds herself... No, pickpocketed and nitpicked by the white man at every turn. That's very much what this movie is trying to, to show you at every turn for her is that she has to box him out uh, at every moment and stand up for her worth. While in her own band, Levy, played by Chadwick Boseman, is a teeming young man full of talent, ready to break out, put it together his own band. He's got songs ready to go. He's got people ready lined up. He's just teeming ready for that green light. And there's a discrepancy of which composition they're going to play mm-hmm. so that's kind of the drama here is how's this new kid who has good ideas and some some real talent but how does that work matched up with people who have already been there and the people you have to get past and so what ruben said in this interview that i listened to he said he was trying to get with august's melody like i said what's the song so he i think in a way he was trying instead of doing his song <laughs> of what this play, what this play is in the form of a screenplay. He was trying to do what August would do as a screenplay. But it, right. it, obviously, there's something there. So I think that 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 that's the last we'll say about the play portion of it. But I think the big section that he said in terms of of changing was Ma comes in on page 48 of a 102 page play, and she's page oh, wow. one of the script, where it's like it's about her. She's in this tent, like you said, in the south. You almost have to, like you said, like you have to know about her or have some understanding of it because it just jumps right in. That's really interesting. So you say that in she's page one in the screenplay, but in the in the actual play, she's forty eight. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating because the entire time I wanted more before the tent. 
I wanted more in the tent. I wanted right. more after the tent. Well, I here we go. Before, I wanted more before the recording studio. I wanted maybe some after the recording studio, more after the recording studio. Yeah. But like in particular, I'm, I'm really interested that they opened up this world and would go to the tent. But what did they, how did they cut so much out of this? Uh, this is fascinating. So here we go. Well, let me elucidate you because that's what I spent most of uh, most of this week learning was about her so story based on truth question mark yes she was a real person she did have a recording session in chicago in terms of the band itself the names the personas they're all fictional the tension between them unknown she had a trumpet player backdrop she's the real singer the band are caricatures to tell a story of uh, well, it's, it's a it's a diverse story that they're yeah. trying to hit on here. So, and you'll love this. So, Dusty May is the young girl, which we'll get to. That's based on her real life rumored girlfriend, which we'll also get into, Bessie Smith, who is the person that surpasses her. Hmm. So they sort of mix it in there. It was her friend slash lover slash protege that oh was gosh. surpassing her. That's- so that is also part of real life that that then gets incorporated a little bit. But we'll just start. Her, her real name is Gertrude. She is known as the mother of the blues, born in Georgia in 1886, if you can mm-hmm. believe that. Her parents were both minstrel troupe performers, which sometimes we see with artists, either their dad is a dentist or their, you know, their parents right. did something involved in it. So she was singing at age 14 and left home in 1900 and toured with various groups. And at this time, there's this style forming, which is eventually called the blues, which she first heard in 1902. And she claims to have invented the name blues to describe her style of music. But it is this particular cultural slowly forming, you know, shortly after Emancipation Proclamation. The music of of the Great Migration. Yeah, yeah. So she marries this guy, William Rainey, in 1904 at age 18, and they tour together as a group, Rainey and Rainey, Assassinators of the Blues. (laughs) She met Bessie Smith, who is the Empress of the Blues, like we said, this protege, who Mm -hmm. ends up making two Mm -hmm. times as many records as Rainey. And what is probably the craziest thing for this time and of this time and understanding it all is they are both openly bisexual. This is incredible. The more I hear about Ma Rainey, the more I'm just like, my God. We're talking about 1927, folks. She is a a black woman who knows her worth. She's a black bisexual woman in 1927 who is going to demand you treat her the way she wants to be treated. Yeah. She's a real deal person. This isn't like she feels like I'm watching on the screen. She's like so she's so godlike. I'm like, no way somebody like this walked the earth. Yes, she did. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, she did. Uh, Mm -hmm. This character, I'm so thankful that somebody like Viola Davis is in this role because she opens up the depth for this character. Everything I was talking about earlier for the the insecurities, her place in between her protege, her own band, the the music industry, um, the white um, uh, record labels, her place in music history. You get to see all of this in her eyes and you hear it in her voice. Viola Davis is nothing short of perfect in, in a role like this and mm-hmm. to bring somebody like Ma Rainey back to life. I mean, it was, it was, really, it was really worth watching the movie yeah. just for that. I mean, just for that, for real. And so she goes her own way, forging her own path. She separated with her husband because remember she was doing that couple show. And so she leaves him in 1916 and begins touring with her own show. And this is 
the bulk of her career. So 19. She's so incredible. I love my God. I love her so much. 1923 it is now. And this is after 25 years of live performance success. And as you alluded to, she has been traveling mostly, and this is how the movie starts in these tent performances in the South. But now we have recording technology. She's recorded with Paramount at the age of 38. She is one of the first black women to be recorded singing. So Mamie Smith was recorded in 1920, but she's one of the first. And she recorded 100 songs. And the big thing was that she wrote a large portion of them. At least a third were her original songs, which is also crazy in terms of her being like, no, we're going to sing my stuff, what I I put out there. So the the movie and the play takes place fictionally sort of at the end of that, because in real life, Paramount ended their relationship with her claiming that, well, this is no longer in style, your classic blues situation. Old Um, news. Yeah. So then as a part of that, Paramount went bankrupt in the 30s, with the Great Depression. So most of her songs were gone until oh the God. 60s when they were... were re- so I'll post a link to one of them on YouTube. But in, in terms of the end of her life, so she retired back to Columbus, Georgia when her mom and sister passed away and she managed three theaters there instead of being oh, in the wow. performing role and then died of a heart attack at age 53. But because of where she ended up, it's crazy. Her death certificate listed her profession as housekeeper. What? So she was not even recognized in her death for all of the stuff she had done for oh my God. the genre and music in general. Her protege, who then makes two times as much music as her, there's hundreds of photos of her that exist performing and elsewhere. Bessie Smith was her name. There are only seven photographs of Ma Rainey. That's staggering. Yeah. That's bananas. And to, uh, I, and think I want everybody to that just heard that to think about what I'm saying about this character, this person, where she stood in in the place of music history. She's she's recorded for the first time at 38, and it's and it's rampant uh, abuse that they're 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 pocketing songs for nickels. So for somebody like her to know her worth and know exactly who she is at this time, but to be battling that that mental pit, I think to be opening up a, a point of view like this 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 black bisexual woman uh, in, in, in a predatory industry in the 1920s. We're finally actually getting material in the hands of, of real of real talent who know something about these kinds of stories. You can tell that bringing Ma Rainey to life was passion for yeah. everybody involved here. So there's many things that encompass her and what she stands for, but I, I sort of tried to boil it down to, I guess, the four landmark things that define her because it wasn't until 1983, now granted the play by August Wilson came out in 82, so who knows if that had something to do with it, but she was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame, even mm. though she's called the mother of blues. God. She was <laughs> inducted the year after, and then got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990 and the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2004. But here are the landmarks that I would say are the things that define her. And the first one being musical innovator. You can't be called the mother of blues without having yeah. created it. So yeah, to sort of, innovate. It's like mm-hmm. you were at the start. Yeah. So <laughs> you, the, the, you put it together. The things that she does, merging the folk blues songs and structures of the Black South with the vaudeville, I guess you could say more white city performances of the North, the, mm-hmm. the, alongside the Great Migration, which is then where she goes to the north to Chicago, which is where this takes place, and records. But she put all those things together in her act and created what's known as classic blues. 
What a beautiful alchemy. Yeah. And then another part of it, which she pioneered, was the low, gravelly voice singing with gusto. A lot of imitators. Louis Armstrong was a young version of himself who sang with her. And then Janis Joplin, of course, afterward. Through Janis Joplin, I mean, she could very well be uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You can't say that rock and roll isn't inherently defined uh, and inspired by the blues. I mean, this yeah. she's she's right there inherent in it. Um, mm-hmm. She her her inclinations, her talent reverberate through so much music. It's it's actually insane. Yeah. The second thing that she is defined by is being a storyteller of the black female experience. Mm-hmm. So a big part of her lyrics. And what she's going for in her whole persona and appearance and attitude and and lifestyle and everything is celebrating the right to conduct yourself as expansively as you want and then or even as undesirably (laughs) as you want (laughs) as men are able to do. Because for in in this genre, especially men's sexual escapades are bragged about in songs of the time. So she's like, what difference does it make for me? So there's right. a song that she has that's called Dead Drunk Blues. And one of the lyrics is, have you ever been drunk, slept in all your clothes, and when you wake up, feel like you want a dose? What woman mm-hmm. was able to sing that in the yeah. 20s? And this is something that I came upon, which may or may not be true, but you could see the correlation, like especially mm-hmm. n- more so now, but independent, fearless sex talk by black women in hip hop. Mm-hmm. As it's going on now, the question, you know, WAP and other songs, are, it's like yeah. that all started here. With yeah. Ma Rainey yeah. just doing it and saying, screw you to whoever else was worried about what it was. What a bamp. What a renegade. <laughs> I love the more I swear with every word. I'm like, God, what a role model. <laughs> I yeah. love her. I really, really do. I mean, I can't stre- overstress just like who we're talking about here. A a, a bisexual mm-hmm. black woman in the South in, in the early 1900s, really forging a path in influencing music. Not just a genre or here or there, influencing music forever. And speaking of the, you're talking about who she is, the sexual norms, I would say, is the third thing. Like I said, she didn't hide her bisexuality. Um, Oh my gosh. In in 1925, she was arrested for throwing an indecent party with a group of young women. Woo! And was was, was, uh, picked up by Bessie Smith, her protege, from jail i believe oh some of it's gosh. apocryphal but that it definitely happened um, <laughs> amazing the details are, are murky um but what, one of the things that was crazy was uh so th- there's a couple songs i won't get into all of them but like there's allusions to it there's there's references there's things like that but the biggest ones there was a song that she came out with called prove it on me blues mm-hmm. and the poster i will post a link to mm-hmm. because it features her in a men's suit and fedora talking to two women on a corner with a policeman watching behind just like brazenly dressing as a man you know like her whole attitude and energy of who she was she made no attempts to hide her enjoyment of women some of the lyrics and i'll post a link to the song so you can listen to it because copyright i can't put it on here but the song went out last night with a crowd of my friends it must have been women because i don't like no men's she just said, she just sang it in the song. And then the, wow. and later on down in the song, she said, where she went, I don't know. I mean to follow everywhere she goes. Folks say I'm crooked. I didn't know where she took it. I want the whole world to know. Very popular oh song. How beautiful. People How like beautiful. Yeah. We live in an a, I mean, obviously the world's like burning down, but <laughs> for somebody like, like her to be 
to be living her own life her i mean for real like living truthfully at that time is is nothing short of astounding mm-hmm. it's such i mean it should be a role model it should be should be more well known that somebody like this strong had this much influence and was this confident and secure in, in really who she was. And when I was talking about insecurities later, I'm talking about her place in, in her career, just career insecurities. This was yeah. a woman who absolutely, when I'm going back to, she knew her worth and didn't matter the, the, the laws of the time, the socio, whatever at the time, whatever people, she knew and she knew who she was and she knew she wasn't doing anything wrong. And she knew that eventually time would change and yeah. she'd be on the right side of history. Here we and are. And that's what the, the play tries to, bring out as well as like, well, they only want me for my voice now. Yes. So, yes. but I, but I have that leverage, so I'm going to use it for everything. It's all about else. the leverage. <laughs> it's all about the leverage. Use it for it. So the, the fourth thing being entrepreneurial, she could make, I saw, I saw in an old book ledger that she had 350 a week for her band, which is a little over $5,000. And if you think about that, that's insane, especially yeah. for the time period. And she was known from some unpublished memoirs from the band members that she always paid them. They paid them well, you know, like they enjoyed yes, working yes. on her. The, the thing was though, she was still potentially screwed over by royalties. So it's, it's unclear to history whether she ever got them from Paramount. Like you said, they're paying nickels oh or whatever for these, yeah. for these songs eventually being recorded. But that was with her band traveling, which is why she liked the going around in the tents and like actually performing to people that she knew when the money changed hands, it was going from them to her. Yeah, But it's just all that encompassing to think she's spearheading a genre that gives rise to jazz and then ultimately rock and roll. And that all started with her in the 1920s. Man, if there's ever a person who is just right, <laughs> she's just right about, she's yeah. just right about everything. Yeah. She, she, <laughs> she, knew, she, knew, she knew what she was doing and she knew she wasn't doing anything wrong. She was going to do the right thing and she was going to make other people do the right thing and hold you accountable. God, I'm, <laughs> I'm in love. <laughs> so that brings us to August Wilson, how he found out about this and plays in general. How did this become yeah. this play? So the title seems strange. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. What in the world is that? It's obviously a euphemism to her, but it's also referring to the Black Bottom dance, which was a popular craze of dance in the Roaring Twenties, similar mm. to the Charleston. Okay. Started by African-Americans in the rural South, famously performed by Ann Pennington in a Broadway review performance. But the original song that it's from is called The Black Bottom Stomp, came from this guy in New Orleans, and it's referencing a town in Detroit called Black Bottom. But then it's also a dance, and there's particular steps that you do. Fascinating. And I believe you slap your butt, or there's different <laughs> versions of it that involve. So it, it's I obviously hope. missing. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> but her song, there is a, she's a blues singer. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was a song that she actually wrote. She makes mm-hmm. allusions to the dance, but it's not a dance song. It's a blues song mm-hmm. about the dance. So mm-hmm. August Wilson, how he fits into this, he once called the blues the bedrock of everything I do. Mm. And in 2004, the year before he, his death, he said, all the characters in my plays, their ideas and their attitudes, the stance that they adopt in the world are all ideas and attitudes that are expressed in the blues. He's very mm-hmm. musical in his writing. Mm-hmm. So he comes from Pittsburgh in 1945. He dropped out of high school and served in the army before coming back at 20 years old. Wow. And this is where he discovered the blues. He wore out 
recordings of Bessie Smith and Ma mm. Rainey. Always wanted to be a writer after that, was a playwright and director working random odd jobs in Pittsburgh in the 60s. Then moved to St. Paul in 78, and this is where he completes finally his first full-length play, Jitney. And this is the first of, and this is what he's known for, if you needed to know one thing about him, is called the Pittsburgh Cycle or the American Century Cycle. So this is crazy. He wrote 10 plays, and this is the body of his work, and they each have to do with a decade of the 20th century. So one of the plays is set in the 1900s, one of them is set in the 1910s, all the way up to the 1990s. Nine of them are set in the Hill District where he grew up in Pittsburgh. One of them is set in Chicago, which is this one, Ma Rainey. So it hits on each decade of the African-American experience in this area of Pittsburgh. It's everyday people, everyday black Americans, and what they're going through. Yeah. And it was, it's just completely relatable. It's everybody that talks about it in these interviews is like, well, do you have a dad? It's about Vati. Like, do you, like, it is exactly, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's somebody's like, oh, he's not writing about Frederick Douglass, you know, in this time. Like, he's not writing these big, larger no, than life stories figure. of the time. Yeah, the untold stories of of the time. That's what I mean. This yeah. this this movie was was boiling over with character, and it's not mm-hmm. just character that was just pontificated off of just some genius. Like, no, he August Wilson was paying attention to the people in his life, the stories that he encountered in his life, the stories mm-hmm. that were not being purported, were not being told, were not being seen, and it, and it's no way that's not everything i mean look a a, a play for a decade every decade i'm looking at what was in just the movie here and we know how much they cut out of the play and i'm thinking the play now there's a play for every decade Mm -hmm. uh he's in tune and listening to everyone in his life because he's coming from a point of view that desperately needs a real (laughs) point of view that breaks through yeah so I like I highly recommend everybody if you are interested in this it's like you can you know you can read these plays it's just amazing that here's this whole thing this is he's won two Pulitzer prizes for drama for two of these things only eight other people in the history of time have won more than one for drama <laughs> so he's in a in a league of nine oh people that have won these more than one Pulitzer yeah. prize for these works he wrote these throughout the 1980s and this is like I said when in 1982 this one was written, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. He was nominated for a Tony when it went on Broadway in 1984. And then there was a revival in 2003 with Whoopi Goldberg as Ma. And oh, wow. Charles S. Dutton, who was, he did it in the revival and the original one. He played Levy. I just wanted to bring up this guy, Charles S. Dutton, because I thought his life was also, <laughs> like, speaking of oh, people yeah. that you don't know, that it's just like an insane story and sure. worth talking about. So like I said, he was the original Levy and then he was also in the revival with Whoopi Goldberg in 2003. Okay. His his life, he was convicted of a manslaughter charge at the age of 16 because he oh stabbed God. a guy, got parole as a juvenile and then was arrested for robbery with a handgun charge and then was sentenced to 3 years in prison. Yeah. Was in prison, got in a fight with a guard which added 8 years to his sentence. Things are not looking good. He gets stabbed in prison in a fight, almost dies in prison. At one point oh was God. sent to solitary confinement for a set number of days. And they allowed them to get one book from the prison library. And he picked up an anthology of black playwrights. Oh, and wow. when he got out of solitary confinement, he asked the warden, can I start a drama group for the prison talent show? 
And the warden said, yes, only if you go back to school. So he did some classes there and then took classes after when he got out and then ended up getting his master's in acting from Yale in (laughs) in 1983. And so his first role was in August Wilson's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom as Levy in 1984. And that's what set him off on his acting career. And he's been in a a bunch of different films, but Alien 3, Rudy, A Time to Kill, Menace to Society, just a million different things. But it's just crazy that it all built up. I'm looking at the cataclysm of timing there because you had had a, a young man that had a story. That's not just some, you know, not somebody who just fell into acting. That's somebody who has, who's been through some stuff. Yeah. And so you have somebody who's found a new lease on life, who's really putting all of his energy into his work now, who's ready to invest in his art, matched up with August Wilson. I mean, it's just incredible to have these two people meet up at that exact time. He gets the role of Levy, this role that just is speaking to everything he's ever known. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I just and wanted you, to- and you got to have momentous meetings like that. And that's what causes magic. So I just thought that was crazy that he brought this to the forefront, like I said. But I also think in comparing it with Chadwick Boseman and the fact that it's like, okay, here's Charles S. Dutton coming from these challenging situations trying to do something. And then in Chadwick Boseman's case, which nobody knew about, which is also crazy in the sense of him, there's monologues where he is asking God how these things could happen to him and what God has anything to do with this. They both have brought an equal measure of personal conflict into the role. So back to just the, the very end of August Wilson's stuff. He moved to Seattle in the 90s, and then Hollywood started proposing film stuff to him. Mm. Um, specifically, it's Fence. It's the 90s. They're making yeah. everything. Uber movies. <laughs> it, yeah, he's getting popular. So uh, they started with Fences, but he his whole thing was he insisted a black director be used, which seems mm-hmm. reasonable because that's all, all his work right. has been about that. They offered him this white director who he declined. And so the film just stayed unmade until 2016 when Denzel Washington directed and acted in it. Because like I said, he and Viola Davis were in the Fences revival. And then now Denzel Washington has the rights to them. So he had said, the greatest part of what's left of my career is making sure that August is taken care of. So Denzel's trying to get all of these 10 plays in this cycle turned into films. But as far as August Wilson, his 10th and final play in the cycle was performed in April of 2005. He was diagnosed with liver cancer in June mm. and then died in October. Oh my all god. All of 2005. God. That's amazing. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I really hadn't I really had no access point for August Wilson before any of this. This is really immense. Mm-hmm. Um I need now I'm interested to go back and look at fences because mm-hmm. and it's just personal. I was just a, a little bit disappointed with the actual directorial adaptation. storytelling in this right. film and this adaptation, the way it was adapted. That I'm I'm curious now what did fences actually look like? How how much did they break out? How much did they cut? So now I've got a whole bunch of a uh, whole bunch of light bulbs going <laughs> off in a whole other direction. Now I'm excited to see what these other films are going to look like. Yeah. 
This is really cool. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I came into the episode going, man, I don't know if I like that movie. And I left going like, man, I'm so glad I went on that journey. Um, so I hope that, I hope that we kind of, you know, if I, if it happened for me, I hope it happened for you out there listening. So, um, <laughs> that's what we aim to do here is try to contextualize. What are we seeing here? What, what does it mean? How should I process this? So, you know, thank you guys for coming along. I really needed it for, for some of this. Uh, thank you, Taylor. Yeah. Uh, this was, this was fantastic. Follow us out there at Illiterate Pod on Instagram. Let us know what you're excited about watching. What are you reading? Let us know. You never know when we'll do an episode. And we will catch you next week. 